We're going to have the literary one. The style of this book is the most purely poetic thing in the Bible. It is one of the delights of the book. But most modern readers are scared off by the very abandonment of the poetic style. Is something this poetic really appropriate in the Bible? Yes, it is. The right way to read the Song of Solomon is to abandon oneself to the poetry. It is a poetry full of emotional and imaginative fireworks, but this is in keeping with the subject matter of the book. Not to abandon oneself to the poetry is to cut against the grain of the book. My advice is simple. Read it as love poetry and abandon yourself to the rapture of the images and sentiments. So friends, this is an invitation to come to Scripture, come to the Bible, I think with a different part than what we often use when we come to Scripture. Uh, Often we think of it as a brain thing. We come with our intellect, our rationality, our argumentation, and propositions. And there's a lot of us here that are gifted that way and really jam on that way to live, living out of our minds and out of our rationality, in our heads, thinking. Uh, And of course, we need to think, and the Bible has lots of propositions and truths and things to to think carefully about. Uh, This book is showing us that there are some very real, beautiful, and legitimate ways to relate to God out of our emotions, our desires, and even our bodies. If you've been in church for a long time and felt a little bit like an outsider because some of the heady academic approach to relating God, relating to God has felt kind of unnatural or constricting, you're in luck. Because the, the Song of Songs is an emotion book. It's an emotion and body book. Let the holy words of Scripture stir your emotions and let your body respond to them, knowing that God is with you in them, even if it's a little uncomfortable or confusing. And it's how he made you. The second framing idea is the theological one. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God designed all of the human experience, all of human life to point us to him, the glorious realities of what it means to experience life with him. The Bible says very clearly that marriage, romance, sexuality is a signpost meant to point us beyond itself to something greater, Christ and the church. That's why God invented marriage and sexuality and romance. It wasn't an accident. It was like, oh, I didn't think they'd do that, you know, when he created humanity. He didn't, it wasn't an afterthought. How can I spiritualize this, this, this like physical thing? No, there was God first, his love for his people through Christ and marriage is made for us to enter into, to embody and experience these mysteries and theological glories in our daily lives. If marriage, we might ask the question, if marriage and sex is just a signpost, should we just skip it and just go to the deeper reality, just blow past onto more spiritual things? 
The book of the Song of Songs is a resounding no to that question. This book would say that we should fully embrace the experience of marriage, romance, and sexuality as we can. Uh, The the longing and delight we can have in our horizontal relationships as a way of being formed and prepared to experience it more and more fully in our vertical relationship with God. How we relate is how we relate. If we struggle to connect emotionally, relationally, affectionately in our horizontal relationships, the odds are we're going to have that same struggle with our vertical relationship with God. And the last thing uh, about our text is the hermeneutical framing idea, which is that the Song of Songs is wisdom literature, which means that these are poems, And within the poems, there are general principles, helpful depictions and descriptions about what is good and right and true and helpful. It's not a manual that gives like explicit step-by-step how-to. Instead, it shows us generally a general way of what is good. And it requires us to consider deeply and carefully what it is saying and pray about and meditate on ways that we could embody or live into the wisdom that God shows us through his word. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Really just, del- you know, just delaying things, just procrastinating, getting into the text here. Uh, okay, so today, today our text is for the ladies, is for women. There's good stuff for the men in, it as, in, in here as well, but we're going to be looking at some poetry that is almost exclusively the woman speaking. Even when we hear from the man, it's a quotation from the man. She's quoting what the man is saying to her. And my main point, the essence of this passage for us this morning, is that female romantic and sexual desire is good and is from God. Ladies, my prayer for you today is that you would feel the holy God who made you and loves you, seeing you in your desires, in your longings for romance and sexual pleasure, and approving of those things in you, being with you in them. Those parts of you are not things to hide from God. They're not separate from your spiritual formation and your spiritual life or your spiritual growth. They're not interruptions or distractions to be repressed, but rather parts of you that can be brought out and held before God and allow him to refine them, to heal them, and and maybe even inflame them in holy ways. Am I blushing? I feel like I'm blushing. Things I never thought I'd say. (laughs) Uh, I am blushing, I feel like I'm blushing. But I am very glad to share this good news with you. I think it's beautiful. It'd be a beautiful thing about our God. And man, I have a couple of prayers for you. First, it's not necessarily directly from this text, but you're, the same is true for you. The, the sexuality, your romantic side, your passion, uh, that's not an, an accident. That's from God, and he's with you in it. But second, as we look at what this poem shows us about female sexuality and romance, I hope that we can take some incremental steps out of our cluelessness when it comes to women. My prayer is that you would hear this message from Scripture that is the total opposite of the message of pornography, which is that women are objects, their pleasure is secondary and only connected to a man's pleasure. I mean, the stats on porn would say that pretty much all of us here Uh, have seen porn in our lives, if not struggled with a season of an all-out addiction. And I don't go into that to make you feel guilty. Friend, if you're struggling with a porn addiction, there is hope you can be free of it. You can come talk to me. My hope instead is that this picture of biblical sexuality with a vocal, sexually desirous woman who feels safe and loved and delighted and pursued uh, would be an alternative vision, a better vision than what pornography offers. 
So let's dive into our text here. Chapter 2, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. So the poem begins with the woman's sense of yearning for her beloved. She knows somehow that he's on his way, and she knows that he is excited to get to her. He's not strolling. The man isn't even running. What is he doing? He's leaping and bounding over anything in his way to get to her. She calls him a gazelle and a young stag. It's a refrain, a phrase that shows up a lot. She's using poetic imagery for him being strong, leaping and bounding with desire, sexual energy, virility. We see the woman wanting to be wanted, wanting her lover to come to her, anxiously waiting for him to get there because she desires him and longs for him. But it's profound that he, he stops. He doesn't barge into the house. He stays outside looking through the windows and the lattice, and then he calls to her. Verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away with me, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its fruit, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. It's interesting that the woman is telling us, speaking for the man, quoting the man. There's lots of other parts in the book where it is directly the man speaking for himself. So it's very interesting that that most scholars think that this is a quotation. Seeing this as a poem in wisdom literature, we can kind of ask questions like, what what does this say about what a woman wants to hear from the man she loves? Why is he staying outside? Why is he not demanding but instead inviting? Why, what does it mean that he uh, is addressing the season, having enough common sense to wait until a good time to call her out of the house? We note that he's making his desire very clear. Not half-hearted, not casual. This passage lines up great for the weather that we've had this week, where it feels like spring and maybe summer all of a sudden. uh, Just exploded, grass is growing, plants are blossoming, tulips in all their glory. And the man calls her away with him. Leave the house and come outside because it's the season. It's the season for love, the seasons uh, for delight and of plenty and joy. The winter is gone. It isn't always spring, but now it is. So poetically, this brings the image, the scene of newness, freshness, vigor, joy, and expectation. One one commentator said, a context for joyous lovemaking. Verse 14, O my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Some beautiful poetry here where he's juxtifying this beautiful bird, this beautiful dove, hidden in these like scraggy rocks and barren cliffs. And he's saying, leave that. Don't be hidden. Come out of this like rocky, craggy place and come into the lush, glorious, verdant spring. Let me see you and behold you and hear you says he wants to see her face and hear her voice. Her voice is sweet. He likes hearing her talk, and her face is lovely. The word here, face, you could also translate as form. Your form is lovely. He likes her body. 
Her form is pleasing to her. Her face delights him. Women desiring to be sought out, to be invited out, to want, for a guy to want to be alone with you, talking with you, listening to you, enjoying your beauty, is good and right. And guys, are you taking note? This is wisdom literature. Again, it's not a manual, like to how to woo your wife or get a wife or whatever, but I think there's some helpful things that we can learn from it. The first one is show that you're excited about your girl. When did it happen that the only sociable, acceptable time, socially acceptable time for men to get excited is about a sports team that they don't play on? I mean, I shouldn't laugh. I'm not trying to like, make fun of men, because it is scary. It's, it's scary to put yourself out there. Share how you feel. Let someone know that you're really into them. Even in marriage. That doesn't go away when you get married. You put yourself out there, and you know, like, there's, you know, there's a headache, or they're, just, they're not in the mood, or whatever. They might not return your feelings. But it requires courage to be a man pursuing a woman. Show her, tell her that you're excited about her. Secondly, ask her out. Some of the, all the single guys went home for, for college or whatever, but some of you single guys need to hear that. Ask her out. It's springtime. It's in the Bible. It's the right time of year. Ask her out for a walk in nature. Go, go see some beautiful blossoming trees. Yes, you will probably say something dumb. That then she can like, tell a funny story at your rehearsal dinner. Like, it's, it's good to look dumb while you're dating. Uh, it's endearing. That was my, that's my secret. That's how I got married. Um, that wasn't in the manuscript. I don't know. But, uh, and some of you married guys need to hear it too. Ask your wife out on a date. Invite her out into this glorious springtime without kids. Take her away with you. And third, tell her what you like about it. Like open your mouth and say it. Be vocal about the things you like, even if you've already said it. Now, this look, might look different between you know, dating and engagement versus married. We found some letters I'd wrote to Camille when we were engaged uh, a few months ago. And uh, you could tell that I was a man who was very ready to be married. And uh, <laughs> there was one line that said, I don't think it's appropriate to be super detailed until after we're married, but I am attracted to you. You are my type. Like, <laughs> can I keep it very, very vague, very, very general? But husbands, you do not need to keep it vague. I know it's hard in the busyness of life. But it's so important to be intentional with this. Be vocal to your woman. When you enjoy her in conversation, Camille's my favorite literary and movie critic. Like She sees things that I, I never pick up. Or when her hair looks nice. Or when she's picking up toys and there's some God-glorifying angles that you notice. Like, say that. Okay, that's it. Take it or leave it. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil our vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Here we see the poem acknowledging the fact that there are threats to the love and romance going on. Foxes that get in the vineyard were actual threats to actual like vineyards, to actual vines. They'd dig around the roots of the vines and could kill them. What are the metaphorical foxes? Well, there's nothing directly in the text that would help us unpack what the foxes are. They're just general obstacles, hindrances to the romance, the relationship, flourishing. I think there's two points of wisdom we see in this passage in the images of foxes and the call to catch them. One, we will know what they are. Like, it's not going to be, I didn't even know there were foxes in there. Like, it's saying, like, catch the foxes. You know them, catch them. And then we will have to decide if we're going to get up to catch them, or just let them run 
loose. You have a big vineyard, you see a fox or two go over, it's like, it's probably fine. They probably won't get that many vines or whatever. That unchecked anger or porn addiction or that crippling anxiety or obsessing about my kids or those lingering thoughts about someone I work with or someone at church, like, it's no big deal. It might not be crippling or like a massive issue in the moment, but if left to run wild in the relationship, we see that it can spoil and destroy it. The point, the point is not to catch the foxes after they've destroyed the vine or after there's like an infestation of overrun with foxes. It's like to catch one when it comes in. Now we get to the fun part, even more fun part. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. So here is the height of the woman's desire in our text. She's delighting in the fact that they belong to each other. There's this mutual ownership of each other, exclusivity and security in the relationship. I know with gender dynamics of our day and age, we might bristle at that ownership idea, but this is beautiful, and it flows straight out of the gospel. We sang that today, like, we belong to the king of kings. He is mine. He wants to be mine. This gives incredible power to the woman. I am free to be his because he is mine. And this points to the one flesh union that we read in Ephesians. And he's grazing among the lilies. Most scholars would say that this is a poetic image of kissing. But it's not a peck on the cheek or, you know, honey, I'm home from work while the kids yell at you kind of kiss. No, this woman is describing a slow, unhurried, contented grazing among the lilies, like a hungry young stag in a lush spring of flowers, spring field of flowers. Do you think the young stag would stay in one place? Do you think he would stop grazing after, you know, just a minute? Do I need to keep going? Are you tracking with me? Verse 17. Until the day breathe and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. All night long, until the break of dawn, this young woman wants her beloved to turn to her, stay with her, be like a young stag on cleft mountains. The word translated cleft here can also be translated as divided mountains. It's poetry. Uh, most commentators would agree it at least generally means the woman's body. And many commentators suggest that there are two particular divided mountains that the woman <laughs> wants her beloved to spend some time on. Eugene, in the message, paraphrases this, a young stag on delectable mountains. That's not me. That's the message translation. It's paraphrase, but like an energetic young stag in his natural habitat, the place he most loves to be, playing, grazing, delighting. You guys okay? It's kind of intense. But this is the Bible, and this is the lady talking, the woman talking. The Bible is celebrating the woman's physical desires and her desire for bodily sexual pleasure with her husband, touching her, spending time on her in specific ways. God created you as a sexual being the body with billions of neurons and nerve endings in places where the only purpose they serve is to provide sexual pleasure. 
Your sexuality, your desires, they're not an accident or an interruption or a distraction. They are from God according to his good design. Our passage ends with a strange dreamlike poem in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. On my bed at night, I sought him who my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him who my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him who my soul loves? The first thing we see is that the woman is now seeking out her beloved. Back in chapter 2, the woman's at home waiting to be found and being invited out. Here we see the woman waking up, looking for her beloved in her bed. He wasn't there, so she goes looking for him. Poetically, it's a stark contrast of the intimacy of their shared bed together to the city streets and the, the city square at night. One place intimate and safe, the, others, the other place exposing and public, vulnerable, and she's found by these watchmen that are worthless. They can't help her, can't help her find her beloved at all. The progression in this is, it goes from yearning for the presence of her beloved. When she doesn't find him, it gives way to fear of abandonment, of loss. And that fear leads to panicky action. Can any of you relate? Have, any, have you ever had disturbing dreams or these terrifying daydreams? Maybe that are like, ambiguously part sexual, but or just chaotic, and just leave you feeling terrible, like rejected, alone, abandoned? Wives, do you have dreams of your husbands leaving you, cheating on you, rejecting you, picking your kids up from the house of his new wife, and all these terrible, terrible imaginings? Behold your heavenly Father seeing you, in that disorienting place, in those emotions, those fears, the confusion and chaos, and being with you in them. He sees you. You can share those with him. The fear of loss, rejection, separation, abandonment, those aren't arbitrary, but they arise from deep core needs, deep core desires that God has given you. But the panicky action is met with a flood of relief in verse 4. Scarcely had I passed them, when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. The woman finds her beloved, clings to him, refuses to let him go, and she takes him back to bed and reconnects with him by making love. Here we see the Bible showing us that it, it can be good and right and biblical for women to initiate sex. This poem is a picture that lovemaking with your husband can be an encouraging, affirming, stabilizing thing in your emotional world, in your marriage. In those places of fear, of fear of loss and abandonment and rejection, there is a physical, bodily affirmation available, an encouragement that can happen in a healthy marriage bed. Yes, we need to speak the gospel fluently over our fears. Of course, we can't put all our, the pressure of silencing our fears on our spouse. Like, no spouse can do that. And yes, we need to think biblically about who God is and what he's done and what that means for our emotion and fears. But one of the ways that God meets us in those emotions and fears might be in your marriage through being held and cared for physically and sexually to experience in our bodies a shadow 
of what is really our ultimate hope, union with Christ. Now this whole mother's house thing, isn't that weird? Like, you went there? Why, why, why did you go to the chamber where you were conceived? It's kind of awkward. Uh, I doubt for many of us, you know, thinking of our mother's bed is, would get us in the mood. But uh, in that world, uh, in the world where the poem was written, it was a, uh, the, the mother's house or bedchamber was uh, the place of deepest intimacy. In the poem, we see it go from bedroom intimacy and security, the city streets, vulnerability and confusion, and back into a place of even deeper intimacy. One commentator said that the mother's house represented the place of security par excellence. Taking her beloved for lovemaking to her mother's house, to the chamber where she was conceived, is a beautiful picture of safety, security, intimacy, and comfort. It shows us some very significant wisdom, I think, Safety and security play a massive role in healthy female sexuality. On the other hand, exposure, shame, risk of rejection and abandonment, loss, these qualities are going to greatly twist, distort, and wound a woman's experience of sex. I remember a conversation a long time ago, my coffee shop days before I was married, I was talking to a girl who said, I could never marry a guy if I haven't lived with him for a while beforehand, uh, which of course is how most of the world thinks uh, outside of church. And I was single at the time, and of course, you know, there's like, well, the Bible says argument, but like just on a practical level, I was like imagining that. I was like, I would be terrified of living with someone, letting them see all my good, bad, and ugly, knowing that they could just be like, nah, I'm good, and walk out the door to experience that level of intimacy and vulnerability with no, with, with, with no security. And she just kind of like blinked at me. Like I never thought about that. My point is safety and security precedes sexual intimacy and freedom. Ladies, it might seem like a power play to use sexuality to get safety or feel secure, but it will never last, and it's the surest way to be left feeling abandoned and used. Wait for a guy who's willing to commit, willing to provide safety and security within the bounds of the marriage covenant. And married women, consider how your sense of safety and security affects your relationship with your husband, especially in the sexual part of your relationship. If it's good, celebrate that. Thank your husband for that. Affirm the things that your husband does that, that make you feel safe. If it's not good, you know, consider sharing that with your husband in, in tenderness. Thank him for what he does do and what you do appreciate. And then in tenderness, say something like, I really desire to, to feel more free sexually, and these are kinds of things that might help. Like, it's hard to imagine a, a situation where that might not go well. It's like, oh, I could do things to help you feel you know, better in the bedroom. Let's do that. But of course, that might not go well. Of course, this is tender, tender places in our marriages, in our souls. So we might need to seek help from a friend or a pastor or a marriage counselor. The answer to better sex might not be, you know, uh, just try, try harder or whatever. It might start by looking at the emotional climate of your relationship and get help if you need it. Even if it's just like at a fox level, even if the house isn't on fire, it's a great place to rehab it when it's not on fire. And for men in the room, consider the wisdom of the scriptures here. How secure does your wife feel in your affections for her? 
your attraction to her, your affirmation of her work in your relationship, in your marriage, your enjoyment of the life that you guys are building and sharing together. Verse 5 ends our passage with in a, uh, a warning, and admonishment that is all throughout the book. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do not awaken love before it's time, before it pleases. Timing, I think we see, is a big deal when it comes to sex and romance. We saw the attention to timing back in chapter 2 with the, those beautiful lines about spring. You know, the winter's gone, the rain, it's not raining anymore, the sun's out. Come out, be free, wear less clothes because it's warm and the time is right. We see the wisdom of the Bible acknowledging that contrary to what our culture said, which is like always up and to the right, awesome every time, uh, not every season is a time of incredible romance and playing upon cleft mountains. There are, are winter seasons when it comes to sex and romance. Maybe you're single. Maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction. Can I just say, if that's you, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, Pastor Mike and I prayed for you this week. We, we're, we're so clueless on how to care for you well, but we love you, and we're so glad that you're here. But if you're in a season where God-honoring sexual activity is simply not in the cards, that, that is a season of suffering. That is part of your suffering. And like all suffering, singleness comes with its own types of gifts and freedom. But here's scripture mapping out the reality that we should adjust our expectations that there will be seasons where our sexual desires are just not fulfilled physically, horizontally. The invitation is, is to not see the... Fu- is to, the invitation is to see the fun and beauty of the season for love that's described here and to not try to force it or make it happen in our own terms on, our, on our, whatever season we are on. The image, to use the images of the text, is like running around frolicking naked in cold, gray, slushy West Michigan March instead of waiting for your warm, green, blossoming springtime. Like, I guess you could... But why? (laughs) Filter that story. (laughs) The invitation is to wait for the full goodness what God has and not settle for some some partial pleasure. And sorry to burst your bubble, single people, but there are winter seasons of romance and sex even in marriage. Maybe due to health problems, being pregnant or having babies. Maybe there's a time where there's just a lot of uh, disunity or discord within your marriage relationship, uh, things that are being exposed and needing to be dealt with relationally. And so there just might be seasons in marriage where there's just not a lot of springtime frolicking. doesn't mean that you're bad or God's angry with you or whatever. Instead, that season should be talked about between you two, prayed about between you two, shared with some close friends or trusted counselors, endured with spirit-filled patience and gospel-fueled long-suffering, and then solved as quickly as possible. Like, you don't have to like, linger in it. Like, get, get help. Talk about it. See what it looks like to come back together. But can we let the wisdom of the Bible set our expectations when it comes to romance and sex? We should expect seasons. Cold, rainy seasons, 
warm, lush seasons, and God will meet us in each season. We can receive what he has for us in each season. To close, I want to make our Jesus turn. What does this poem, for all its romance and sex, for all its poetry and wisdom, have to say about who God is and what Jesus has done? The first thing I think that points to Jesus is that Jesus seeks us out. The first part of the poem is the woman longing for the beloved to come, the man bounding over hills and mountains, stopping at nothing to get to her. This is an image of Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost, to call us out into life with him that gives us rest for our souls. As the popular worship song says, there's no mountain he won't climb up, no wall he won't kick down, lie he won't tear down to get to you. Jesus comes after us. He pursues us in his extravagant love. He calls us to be with him, to follow him, uh, because he loves us. And we are lovely because he loves us. Maybe some of you are here today feeling abandoned and rejected and unloved and unwanted, like no one knows that you exist or cares. But this passage points us to the truth that Jesus wants you. If you're here today hearing God's word read to you, it is God calling you to himself. The second place we see Jesus is in the the whole foxes in the vineyard verse. Where else in scripture do we see a pest, an intruder, sneaking into a garden to destroy something beautiful? It's in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the snake uh, coming into a perfect lush garden with a man and woman who are naked and unashamed in their relationship, uh, Adam and Eve, and they walk with God intimately in the cool of the day. And Satan spoke a lie that ate away at the roots of their trust in God's love and goodness towards them. They believed the terrible lie and that shattered their relationship between each other and their relationship with God. They were now naked and ashamed. It broke the intimacy that they experienced on all levels. But in Genesis 3, it says that Jesus will come and crush the snake's head. We see he did that on the cross. We see his broken body and shed blood. We see in that the undeniable fact of God's love for you and his goodness for us, that he would stop at nothing, not even death on a cross, in order to bring us back into that place of being naked and unashamed in the, the delightful union that he has created for, with us, with himself. No amount of sexual brokenness, sexual repression, sexual depravity will separate us from the love of God that will keep Jesus from seeking you out, calling you out, calling you to come away with him and find rest for your souls. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come before your word, uh, I come before your word, just so uh, in awe of the fullness of what you would seek to address in your, in your love, love towards us. I pray, Father, for all of us here today as we get to some of these incredibly tender, uh, vulnerable places and sexuality and romance and disappointments in marriage and disappointments in singleness, angst and singleness, Father, would you hold us in these tender places? This beautiful passage, this beautiful vision that we have, Father, would you, let, let it, by the power of your spirit, let, us not, let it not condemn us, but instead invite us out, invite us in. Give us courage to, to bring things out that we haven't thought about or talked about with you or anyone else for a long time so we might find, find healing. May we be a place here 
where husbands and wives experience uh, more and more of the delight you have in sex, where, where singles feel cared for and seen, um, where, where sexual brokenness is healed with your tender love in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.